Hello, and welcome to the Sunday Sermon Cast from Bethel Evangelical Free Church on Washington Island, Wisconsin. I'm Rick Smith, and I've been here at Bethel since 2016, enjoying this great church on this spectacular place off the northern tip of Door County, Wisconsin. This message comes from our Sunday morning service here on the island, and it's geared towards discovering what the Bible has to say to us in our everyday lives. So, God's blessing on you, and thanks for joining with us wherever you are today. Well, as mentioned, my children are here, uh, Michael and Stephanie. Uh, I've kind of given them a funny raising. Um, we, as many pastors, have moved them all over this country in many places. And, and if you ask them, where are you from? It's one of those disorienting questions from them because they don't really have an answer. They, they grew up their first five, four or five years in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Then we moved to Regina, Saskatchewan, up in Canada, and then down to rural Arizona, a place called Sonoida that most people have never heard of, and then to suburbs of Chicago and Schiller Park, and then out to rural Nebraska again. And, and that was all by the time they were junior hires. <laughs> And so to, to, to say, this is where I'm from, it, it's, it's a little bit, uh, they have some hesitancy as they answer that. Michael, when he was at grad school, he, uh, there was a linguistic guy who came to, to their school and he was talking to students and said he could figure out where they were from based upon their accents. And, and so he would prove that with uh, several of the students. And Michael came up eventually and, and he said some of the words that he was supposed to and the guy just was a little stumped. He said, you are a mess of an accent. I hear some Midwest. I hear some Canadian. I, I don't know. And, uh, and that's just kind of what they have. And so where do they belong? Where do you call home? And, and uh, that's, a, that's a tough question sometimes. And, and yet it's a, it's a question for all of us that on some level we're longing to be someplace where, well, we belong. We have uh, sung about the, the, the little village of Bethlehem today and, and just thinking through the, the elements of, of Mary and Joseph and Jesus and, and you know much, much of the story there, but there are other stories of Bethlehem previous to this that kind of anticipate this story and we're going to look at one of them today. It, it is the story of a, of a woman named Ruth who... Well, she isn't even an Israelite. She's not a Jew at all at the outset, at least. She is from another land. And the way her story goes out, it begins in the city of Bethlehem. And there is a, there, there is a man named Elimelech, uh, whose name means the, the Lord is my king, um, or God is my king. And he is living there in the land with his wife and two sons, but there's a famine in the land, and they need to leave because there's no food. After enough time, they have to leave, and they go down to a place called Moab, which is a bit east of Bethlehem, and they begin living there. And, and while they're there, Elimelech dies. Uh, now, the, the boys are growing up. They're of marrying in age, and so uh, Naomi, the wife she has her two boys get married to local women, Moabite women. And, and so they, they're living their lives, and for 10 years it's going along, and then both of her sons die. And so now you have no husband and no sons and two daughter-in-laws who are Moabite women. And uh, life is, well, it's a story of, of loss and sorrow, isn't it? Uh, as... as Naomi kind of looks at her life and where she's at at this point, and she hears that back home in Bethlehem, the famine has diminished, and, and there's food again there. The Lord has provided, and so 
She says, well, it's time to go home. And she tells her daughters-in-law who are living there with her and eventually tells them, you know what? Just go home to your families. What, am, what, am, what are you going to do with me? I'm an old woman. I'm an old woman, and I got nothing for you. I mean, I can't provide you with new husbands. I mean, even if I had a husband today, would you wait that long for a husband? It's ridiculous. So just go home to your family. And, and both of the women uh, at the outset, they're like, no, 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 we will stay with you. I said, no, 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 there's nothing. Just go to your homes. And uh, one of them, Orpa, she uh, at least seems a little reluctantly, but says, okay, yeah, I will do that. And she kisses and weeps and, and hugs and, and goes, says goodbye. And, but the other of them, Ruth, whom, for whom the, the, the book is named after, she refuses to do that. She is going to be dedicated to this woman and stay with her uh, through thick and thin. And uh, there's this beautiful passage. And we're, we're in the book of Ruth here. And just starting to, from her response to Naomi's decision to say, you must go home, um, in verse 16, she begins saying this. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Again, at the outset, this is, this is a story of tragedy, isn't it? It's a, sor- a story of loss and sorrow. As this woman's life is going on, all she's seen since they left Bethlehem was those closest to her dying. And so as she comes back to her home, her name, which means Naomi, or her name Naomi, which means pleasant, she says, don't call me pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Lord has been against me, and I am bittered by the life that I have now had to leave. Here I come back empty when I left full. Well, it's a pretty tragic story at the outset. And what's going to happen? As, as these two make their way there, not much has changed for them. They don't have husbands any longer. And how will they make their way in a, in a culture, in a, in a place where the men dominated the, the, the making of goods and the bringing in of the things that needed to happen. How were they going to make their way? And, and this is the next question for them. What happens next for them? And as the story goes on, uh, they get back to their own, to Naomi's area, and some things begin to happen. Um, and the narrator gives us a little clue into this. In, in chapters 2, starting in verse 1, It says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, 
Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose field I find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And just a little bit of background on this. So, so one of the things it talks about in the Old Testament, in the law, is that when people are harvesting, the people of God, as they go through their fields and harvest, they are not to grab everything that they can. They are not to, take, to, to completely strip the fields But if stuff falls on the ground, they are to leave it there for the foreigners or the poor that are within their midst that don't have means so that after the harvesters go through, then others can come behind them and and glean what they can from what's left over in the land. And, And so this is what Ruth is now left to, that she is going to follow those who are harvesting the barley, which is has now come into season, and and to walk behind them so that she can gather. Well, the food that both she and, and Naomi are going to need. Uh, this, uh, she's picking up the scraps that, that go along there. And as the story continues in verse 4, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed, and with her face to the ground, she exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. So our our, our tragic story as it begins now begins to change. And yet there's all kinds of other things that are going on for Ruth. Ruth is now in a foreign land. She is from Moab. She's not a native to these people. She's not part of their clan. And, and there's all kinds of ways that she could be thought of. And, and she understands that, that, that being a foreigner within their midst is, well, sometimes it's, it's not a good thing. We have seen in our lives that foreigners within our midst sometimes are not treated very well. 
Sometimes because of their language or because of their cultural differences, they do things that are not expected to us and, and we don't like it. They should know what we do and how we're supposed to do things. And, and so sometimes they, they receive less than pleasant treatment from, from those who are native to the land. Uh, if you've been to other countries and, and have to, had to face cultural or language differences, uh, it can be difficult uh, last year we went and saw Michael when he was in Ukraine and, and uh, uh, one of our, our later days there, uh, Michael was doing some other things. So Betty Lou and I set off on our own. It's not a really excellent experience for us. There was a couple people in some of the bigger shops who were able to communicate with us a little bit in English, but otherwise there was a lot of pointing and, and it was about as frustrating as it could be trying to make that connection in this very strange land. And there was, there was buildings, and we got that, and there were some signs that were in English, but hardly anyone were, was able to speak with us there. And, and, and to us, it was one of the, well, seemingly cold places in terms of people's response to you. Certainly some of their dynamics and their history came part of that, but it was not, we, we knew we were not at home. We didn't belong. And... Uh, that is a hard thing. So Ruth, as she's living this out and now living in this foreign land with her mother-in-law, is surprised at the kindness of this man who, who notices her and says, why, why would you do this for me? I, I'm, I'm just a foreigner in your land. And, and Boaz, as he talks with her, he says, I've heard your story. I've heard what you've done. When Naomi, lo- Naomi lost everything, you have stuck with her. You have been with her through very thick, even leaving your mother and your father and your homeland to come here to be and to care for her. What Boaz notices in in Ruth is someone who is a person of character, who has demonstrated that they care and and will be faithful to another. And those are things that he highlights and notes. In this period of, of Israel's life, where lots of things were not going right. This is in the time of the judges, and, and uh, the book of Judges really gives a story of how Israel failed to honor God and how, how they failed to, to live things right. The, the book of Judges, which is right before this, ends with, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And usually it wasn't right in the, Lord eyes, the Lord's eyes. So here she is receiving this kind treatment. Well, she goes through the day, and eventually she comes back to Naomi, and Naomi's like, tell me everything. What, what happened that day? And so she tells about what goes on. She says, I happen to be in this field. And it's like, Boaz, that's, that's my kinsman. That's, he's part of our clan. And, and, and they begin to talk excited. Oh, the Lord is, is going to be good to us. He's blessed you by meeting him, and he has shown kindness to you. And, and, and so she continues to, 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 to glean and, and to get food and, and to provide for them. And as the story moves into chapter 3, Naomi begins to hatch a plan. Like a good Jewish mom or mother-in-law in this case, she uh, is finding ways to be a matchmaker and is thinking, how can I care for this daughter-in-law of mine who needs, well, she needs a man in her life. And so as chapter 3 begins, it starts, one day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for and is not Boaz with whose servants girls you have been a kinsman of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor 
Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. So Naomi has a plan. How can we get Boaz interested in you? And so she tells Ruth to to, to wash herself and perfume herself and, and put on your best clothes, or at least normal clothes. It's likely that Naomi was still wearing, or uh, Ruth was still wearing, widow's clothing. Uh, it would be a period of mourning where they would wear demonstrably, demonstrable clothes that, that indicates she's still a widow and that she's still in this period of mourning. But she says, put on these different clothes and go down and, and meet him down there. And after his time of eating and drinking, when he's relaxed, lay down there with her. And there's, there's a little bit of provocativeness in this, isn't there? I mean, it's just like... What's, what's really going on here? And uh, but certainly as we look at the story and how it's describing both Ruth and Boaz, that, that both of them are people of character and, the, and there's, not, there's not the suggestion that something is wrong in what they're doing, uh, maybe overly sexual in, in how it's happening, but, but still it's there and, and there's some risk that Ruth could be misinterpreted in her intentions. But as the story goes on, Boaz figures out exactly what's going on. His first question as he wakes up is, who are you? It was dark. This is in uh, verse 9. And Ruth responds, I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. Now this idea, this picture of a kinsman redeemer is important. Kinsman means the relation and, and uh, they, they are connected. And the, the definition of a kinsman redeemer is, uh, is the nearest male blood relative who served as an advocate for any vulnerable and or unfortunate clan member in order to correct any disruption to clan wholeness, well-being, or peace, especially through the redemption or restoration of property, persons, or lineage. And so as, as, as Ruth indicates, you are this kinsman redeemer. You are this person who is related to us, who has the right and option, well, to help us and to take care of the problems that we have, uh, the problem of, of being able to live and, and what's happening with our land and with our lives. Uh, on some level, it is to, to preserve the, the line of Elimelech and Malon, um, who would have been uh, Ruth's husband? Where will there be an heir for this family? And some of that comes into play. We, we, we uh, talked about this last Saturday night in our sermon on uh, Judah and Tamar and how part of with Judah and Tamar that Judah, the father-in-law, both of his sons uh, had been married to this woman Tamar. They both died without leaving an heir and, and it comes up eventually for Judah to be the one to provide this. And uh, we'll see the connection to this story in a minute. But to provide, to give someone, to give a family line that will continue on for this particular part of the clan. That's what a kinsman redeemer does, to rescue them from difficult circumstances. And so as Ruth indicates to him, I'm offering myself to you. And so... Boaz's response is, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed to me earlier. 
You have not run after the young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. And as they continue on, he recognizes that as far as the relations go, there is someone closer than him in terms of relations to Elimelech. And he has to be talked to because he has the first opportunity to help this family out, uh, to help them in, in buying the land and, and to take care of them. And so he, he, he says, stay here, I'll take care of this guy. And so first thing in the morning, he goes to, take, to visit with this guy and talks with him and meets him at the gate and gets the elders to gather with him there. And, and they begin talking. He's like, hey, there you are. Hey, the, Naomi has told me that she desires to sell this land and, and you are the closest kinsman redeemer to come and the right is up to you if you want to buy it. And he's like, oh, sure, that sounds great. Uh, but then he tells them the rest of the story. So as soon as you do this, you also get with the land uh, the widow and the rights and the responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer to provide for them and, and to, to, uh, to take care of them. And, and to which the, the, the kinsman redeemer, who is unnamed here, says, um, then I can't redeem it because I will put my own life at jeopardy. And so he denies this and, and says, you're the next in line. You do it. Opening the way for Boaz to begin the relationship. We've seen in this story two people that have the possibility to stay with others. Uh, Orpah could have stayed with, with Naomi but decided not to, but there was nothing against this. Now the kinsman redeemer has a possibility but doesn't do it, which is nothing bad on him. There's no shame and there's no responsibility that he had to do. It was just an opportunity. But we've also seen two people who have gone above and beyond to take care for Ruth, for Naomi, and now Boaz with Ruth and Naomi at, at the, as they picture this. The story climaxes with them getting married and them bringing them into this household and, and, and living together. And eventually, Naomi and Boaz have a child named Obed. And they place the child in Naomi's hand, not Mara's hand, in my, Naomi's arms. And he says, I now have a son again. The line will continue. And uh, the picture here is of redemption. In the midst of loss and sorrow, now there is a sense of restoration, of things being made right eventually along the line. And the amazing thing about this story is that as it connects with its history, we see God continues to use this relationship down the line. Um, it ends in, uh, in verse uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this, this woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the, offspring, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. When we look in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a genealogy. Perez is part of that. He is the, the son of Judah and Tamar. And down the line from them, seven generations comes down 
King David, the great king, coming out of Bethlehem. And as Matthew takes that story and then moves it even further, who else comes from this family? Jesus comes from this family. Redemption is part of this history. Restoration is part of it. Redemption being brought back. That's part of this story. This is what God is doing and what he has been transpiring. And, and he's using these stories and, and to bring it all the way to this great conclusion of Jesus who redeems us through his own life. He buys us from our destitution, our separation from God because of our sin. But not only does he do that, he is also our brother. The book of Hebrews says that he did not faint or did, he, he did not deny to call us brothers, that we are brothers and sisters of Jesus. He is our kinsman redeemer, completely fulfilling all that God has laid before us. This is the love of God appearing to us and demonstrating as well that God has had a plan. God has had a destiny for each of us to know him, to walk with him, and and to be brought and, and have a place of belonging ourselves. You belong to the family of God because of what Jesus did. You have standing. You have value. That's who you are. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have standing because God bought us. And that's the treasure of Christmas. That's the treasure of remembering this time of year, what God has done on our behalf. We have value. It's a great story from Taylor Caldwell about her Christmas miracle. It came after a time of her bleakest Christmas. She had been recently divorced. She was in her 20s. She had no job. She was on her way downtown to, to find a job. She had no umbrella. Her old one had fallen apart. She just was in a difficult time. And as she went to this place, she, she writes this. I examined the handle of this place and saw a name engraved among the golden scrolls. The usual procedure would have been to turn in the umbrella to the conductor, but an impulse I decided to take it with me and find the owner myself. She'd found this umbrella as she went. And I got off the streetcar in a downpour and thankfully opened the umbrella to protect myself. Then I searched a telephone book for the name on the umbrella and found it. I called and a lady answered. Yes, she said in surprise, that was her umbrella, which her parents, now dead, had given to her for a birthday present. But she added it had been stolen from her locker at school. She was a teacher more than a year ago. She was so excited that I forgot I was looking for a job and went directly to her small house. She took the umbrella and her eyes filled with tears. The teacher wanted to give me a reward, but though $20 was all I had in the world, her happiness at retrieving this special possession was such that to have accepted money would have spoiled something. We talked for a while, and I must have given her my address. I don't remember. The next six months were wretched. I was able to obtain only temporary employment here and there for a small salary, though this was by what what they now call the Roaring Twenties. But I put aside 25 or 50 cents when I could afford it for my little girl's Christmas presents. It took me six months to save $8. My last job ended the day before Christmas. My $30 rent was soon due, and I had $15 to my name, which Peggy Peggy and I would need for food. 
She was home from her convent boarding school and was excitedly looking forward to her gifts the next day, which I had already purchased. I had bought her a small tree, and we were getting ready to decorate it that night. The stormy air was full of the sound of Christmas merriment as I walked from the streetcar to my small apartment. Bells rang and children shouted in the bitter dusk of the evening, and windows were lighted and everyone was running and laughing. But there would be no Christmas for me. I knew no gifts, no remembrance whatsoever. As I struggled through the snowdrifts, I had just about reached the lowest point in my life. Unless a miracle happened, I would be homeless in January, foodless, jobless. I had prayed steadily for weeks, and there had been no answer but this coldness and darkness, this harsh air, this abandonment. God and men had completely abandoned me. I felt old as death and as lonely. What was to become of us? She could almost call herself Mara. I looked in my mailbox. There were only bills in it, a sheaf of them, and two white envelopes, which I was sure contained more bills. I went up three dusty flights of stairs, and I cried, shivering in my thin coat. But I made myself smile so I could greet my little daughter with a pretense of happiness. She opened the door for me and threw herself in my arms, screaming joyously and demanding that we decorate the tree immediately. Peggy had proudly set our kitchen table for our evening meal and put pans out and three cans of food, which would be our dinner. For some reason, when I looked at those pots and cans, I felt brokenhearted. We would have only hamburgers for our Christmas dinner tomorrow and gelatin. I stood in the cold little kitchen and misery overwhelmed me. For the first time in my life, I doubted the existence of God and his mercy, and the coldness in my heart was colder than ice. The doorbell rang, and Peggy ran fleetly to answer it, calling that it must be Santa Claus. Then I heard a man talking heartily to her and went to the door. He was a delivery man. And his arms were full of parcels, and he was laughing at my child's frenzied joy and her dancing. This is a mistake, I said. But he read the name on the parcels, and they were for me. When he had gone, I could only stare at the boxes. Peggy and I sat on the floor and opened them. A huge doll, three times the size of the one I had bought for her. Gloves, candy, a beautiful leather purse. Incredible. I looked for the name of the sender. It was the teacher. The address simply California, where she had moved. Our dinner that night was the most delicious I had ever eaten. I could only pray, thank you, Father. I forgot I had no money for the rent and only $15 in my purse and no job. My child and I ate and laughed together in happiness. Then we decorated the little tree and marveled at it. I put Beggy to bed and set up her gifts around the tree, and a sweet peace flooded me like a benediction. I had some hope again. I could even examine the sheaf of bills without cringing. Then I opened the two white envelopes. One contained a check for $30 from a company that I'd worked for briefly in the summer. It was, said a note, my Christmas bonus, my rent. The other envelope was an offer of a permanent position with the government to begin two days after Christmas. I sat with the letter in my hand and the check on the table before me, and I think that was the most joyous moment of my life up to that time. The church bells began, bells began to ra- ring. I hurriedly looked to my child, who was sleeping blissfully, and ran down the street. Everywhere, people were walking to church to celebrate the birth of the Savior. People smiled at me, and I smiled back. The storm had stopped. The sky was pure and glistening with stars. The Lord is born, sang the bells to the crystal night in the laughing darkness. Someone began to sing, Come, all ye faithful. I joined in and sang with the strangers all about me. I am not alone at all, I thought. I was never alone at all. 
And that, of course, is the message of Christmas. We are never alone. Not when the night is darkest, the wind coldest, the world seemingly most indifferent. For this is still the time chooses. For us, that, that's God's work in our life. His call upon us. The story of Ruth is this example of God's presence even in darkness and difficulty of loss and sorrow that we belong, that we are known, that we are matter and are valued. And that story goes year after year after year. From those first days as Jesus talked about the kingdom of God and then died on our behalf. And as the story continues to us today, We still belong. We still matter. What is Christmas for you? Who are you? Where do you belong? Wherever that is, locationally or geographically, we belong next to our Savior with the Spirit of God guiding and directing us no matter where we're at. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, thank you that your word shows us hard things and hard lives. And yet in those hard lives and difficult times, you show up. Your loving kindness comes and we see it. And we thank you that in dark times, Jesus came to a place where they thought there was no hope any longer. And yet you brought hope through the coming of Messiah Through the centuries since, we continue to have hope in what you've done and what we anticipate you are going to do in our lives and and in the day that we look forward to when you come again to set things to right, to make everything good that is bad, to rule in the new heaven and the new earth. This is our hope. This is our, our dream. This is where we belong. We come before you through Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless you and Merry Christmas. Well, thanks again for listening. And to learn more about how you can connect with Bethel Community Church, check out our website at islandbethelchurch.com or join us for a service Saturday night at 6 or Sunday morning at 1045. Hope to see you soon. God bless you.